Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, or whatever time period you find yourself listening to this episode. Let's pick up from the conversation we were having last time. I apologize for being a little late on posting this one. Life has been rather busy uh, lately. I am uh, pursuing a master's degree, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, and uh, yeah, life's just busy. But last time, where we were at is we were talking about God's eternity and whether God can change or not. And we broke down some logic, and there's probably more to break down, but we can get to that another time where you can email me with your questions and, and we can talk about that. But it does bring up the question then, if, as we talked about, God's eternity is outside of time and yet God is intimate with every single moment of time, then that means that at the moment that you're listening to this podcast right now, God is intimate with what you're doing, what you're thinking, and who you are in this period of time, and just as intimate as he was a week ago, and just as intimate as he will be a year from now with whatever you're doing at that point. So what we can logically conclude then is that God knows what's going to happen in the future. Then this has to bring up the question, if God knows what's going to happen in the future, and we see this evidence in the Bible where God gives a prophecy, a foretelling of an event that is to come in the future. And this doesn't just pertain to what he's going to do, but sometimes this pertains to what people are going to do. Sometimes this pertains to pagan kings, as is one example in the Bible where God predicts that Darius the Mede will let the Israelites go out of Babylon. And he does, and he fulfills this prophecy. So, is everything predetermined? Or do we have free will? And I got a level with you guys. I've been watching a lot of videos on the philosophy of this. There's just so much out there, especially in the past hundred years or so. As we become a culture that is more scientifically minded and that we base a lot more of our philosophy now off of science, where if we were to take philosophy from three or four hundred years ago, it was philosophy that was driving the scientific endeavors. Well, we've had a cultural shift now as a species, as, as a race, as humanity, where science now drives philosophical endeavors and philosophical conclusions. The least of which not being one that we've already talked about in other episodes in this show, but that is reductionalism. And that's a philosophy that is entirely driven from physics. And as the name implies, and as we've talked about before, reductionalism is just that. It's reducing everything to its minimalistic origins, to the smallest component of it, right? So in reductionalism, we as humans are nothing more than the composition of particles and atoms. The emotions we have are nothing more than the synapses and the neurons, the atoms receiving and discharging energy throughout our bodies, and this isn't foreign, and this isn't weird, and this isn't really something that I'm talking about that you're not going to understand because it's all mathematically based. If you've ever studied differential equations, you'll kind of know where I'm headed with this. And that's that in differential equations, there's an integration principle that basically from a 30,000 foot view of what differential equations are says that you can solve equations by reducing them back to their 
equational inputs. They're original equational inputs. And so, to oversimplify reductionist philosophy, reductionist philosophy would then say everything in life follows that same principle, that it becomes a first principle of reductionist philosophy. And of course, when I say first principle, what I'm sure is true for me is true for you, that when you hear that word first principle, your mind immediately goes to Aristotle, right? Because Aristotle was the one that really put to writing this idea of first principles, and especially with regards to logic, and we've talked about this before, right, where first principles of logic are the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, and the law of identity. Well, in reductionist philosophy, the first principle of it is that everything can be reduced down to its fundamental input or equation, and that's what drives everything. So if then we were to take a reductionist philosophy on predeterminism versus free will, what we actually must do is we must reduce everything all the way back down to its origins, its physical origins. So in other words, where reductionist philosophy would look at predeterminism or free will, and this is an oversimplification, so forgive me and bear with me because we only got 20 minutes, but I think we can draw some conclusions. But where reductionist philosophy takes this idea of decisions and whether we have control over them or not, um, in order to actually even begin to answer this question, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning of time to an event called the Big Bang. And for the sake of argument, I don't care Christian or not, let's just assume the Big Bang happened, that it's, it's, a, it's an event in recorded history. As a Christian, I believe it did, and I think we got into that in an episode like last year, but we can talk about it again, shoot me an email. But reductionist philosophy, in order to answer this question, has to look all the way back to the Big Bang as that origin equation, those origin inputs that then drive everything else. And so I'm just going to take some liberty here and assume when I say Big Bang, when I say chemical reactions, when I say time was set in motion and a series of reactions happened, I'm just going to assume, I'm going to use the, the liberty of uh, being on the other side of this microphone to assume that you can kind of have some kind of general idea of what I'm talking about uh, because you generally understand cause and effect like I do, right? Uh, cause and effect think you light a fuse and 15 seconds later, a small canister shoots up into the sky and a burst of light and color goes off and didn't do it all on its own. You lit the firework when it was on the ground and it shot up as an effect of the cause that you started, right? Well, in a similar sense, nature operates this way. And this isn't reductionist philosophy. This is just what we all know from common sense. There is a general law of cause and effect. And I know we've talked about this before on a different episode where we talked about does the Bible contradict science and can Christians believe in evolution? If you haven't listened to those, go back and check those out. But regardless, we're all pretty familiar with this idea of cause and effect. Well, if we take reductionism at face value and assume there isn't another philosophical way to look at life other than essentially life in an oversimplistic view is a series of differential equations played out over the entire course of the past thousands and thousands of years. And if we say that the entire existence of the earth, the universe, everything is nothing more than a series of differential equations, and we can trace it back to a common equational input, that being the Big Bang Theory, we must then make the assumption that the firing of synapses, the particles receiving, discharging energy within us, also through a very long series of differential equations, derives its origin from the Big Bang Theory. So, in other words then, if we were to take reductionalism, and I have nothing against reductionalism, I think reductionalism is actually a very helpful philosophy in a lot of situations. 
I don't think it's a standalone philosophy or standalone worldview that we can use, but if we treat it like that, if we treat it like a standalone philosophy, standalone worldview, what we are left with is what's called hard determinism. And since I brought up hard determinism, it's probably helpful to ask, well, what's the opposite of that? Thank you for asking. The opposite of hard determinism is a philosophy called libertarian free will, and it's helpful to bring them both up at the same time because they are in direct opposition to each other. You see, hard determinism says there is no free will. Period. End of story. Let's go home. What do you want to eat for lunch? I don't care if you answer the question. It's already been predetermined. You're going to order what you're going to order. I'm going to order what I'm going to order. And that's it. There's no choice. There's no free will. Libertarian free will, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. It's the yin to the yang, right? Libertarian free will says nothing's determined, that everything is free will. And then, of course, 60, 70 years ago, compatibilism comes out as a philosophy to kind of bridge the gap between those two. And so what we're left with then is a little bit of confusion and a little bit of chaos in the philosophical world at the current point in time in which we live. And that's okay, because if you look at philosophy throughout the ages, philosophy shifts and changes. And just because one philosopher makes sense now and maybe is a bit more trendy now doesn't mean they will later in the future. I mean, for example, if we look at the teachings of Plato, Plato thought women were a completely different species from men. Actually, he, he said that a man who loves a woman in a heterosexual kind of way is actually loving her with an impure love and that the only pure love is a man who loves another man and that the purest form of that love is a man who loves a little boy. So a little weird coming from Plato, right? I'm thankful that not every idea and philosophy sticks in culture. And so when talking about these things, it's it's important to take a step back, get a 30,000 foot view of, of history, whether it's predetermined or not, and realize that philosophy and ideas also follow a trend line. And I think that's what we're seeing a little bit now with predeterminism versus free will. In philosophy, that is, that right now the reductionist philosophy sounds really, really good because we're at such an advanced age of science and we're able to figure out so many things and, and we're able to reduce a lot of the science in ways that we could never even dream of a hundred years ago and what that's leading to is some really awesome stuff and some really awesome advancements and we're making great strides in so many different areas of life but anyway off my soapbox back to the topic so where hard determinism utilizes reductionist philosophy the most is it says all of your choices are completely determined by external factors in other words you have no original thought every thought you've ever had is a continuation of something outside of yourself that you were exposed to at some point in life, or a biological characteristic of yourself as a human as a result of anything, as a result of where you grew up, as a result of the wiring of synapses and the wiring of neuropathways in your brain, as a result of the kind of television you were exposed to, or the kind of music you were exposed to, or the biological tendencies you have as a part of the genes that you have passed down through generations and generations of your family, or even just the biological design of some kind of evolutionary process that formed you. You have no original thought and you have no control over how you engage with those original thoughts in the real world. We call those actions, right? Because thoughts are in your head and actions are outside of your head. That's what you actually do. But you have no control over it. It's all chemical. It's all biological. It's all a result of differential equations being played out over the past thousands and thousands of years ever since the initial input of the Big Bang. And then compatibilism 
comes out as a philosophy. And I'm going to reference two perhaps homework items you can look up after this episode. Uh, the first is Patricia Churchland, and the second is the Frankfurt cases. And I encourage you to look those up. Those are some uh, philosophies and evidence-based studies on compatibilism. But basically, I'm going to sum it up here for the sake of time. Compatibilism then uh, comes out and says there is free will within a predetermined existence. In other words, you don't entirely have free will. Not everything you think, not everything you choose to do internally, and not everything you act, choose to do externally, is completely autonomously decided within you. That actually a lot of it does depend on, you know, nature versus nurture, uh, to <laughs> bring Freud into this, but, uh, and we'll leave him there. But <laughs> not everything you do is completely autonomously your decision. Some of it is influenced, a large majority of it is influenced actually by causes that happened outside of yourself. But to some extent, you get to be a causer. And an image that I came across in doing some research on this is the image of two men in a swimming pool. One man was pushed into the swimming pool and the other one chose to jump in himself. The result of both of those were the same. And it could be argued that both men were predetermined to be in the swimming pool. One was predetermined to make the choice to jump in, perhaps even by circumstance. He came with his family to the swimming pool. They said, you're going, put your swim trunks on, we're going. Well, he's there, so he's going to jump in. It's a predetermined thing driven by the external circumstances, the nature, the nurture around him. The other man obviously predetermined to jump in because someone came and pushed him into the pool. Where compatibilism steps in and says, well, hold on, let's think about this a step further, is it says, what if the man who was pushed into the pool had also predetermined in his head that he wanted to be in the pool? And what if the man who jumped in had also predetermined he wished he could go to the pool that day, and then the factors of his life, the external causes, so lined up that he could make that choice. Though it was predetermined, it was still a choice in free will. What we're dealing with here then is a subconscious and conscious free will in the midst of an external predetermination. So even though the man was pushed into the pool, he still, with his free will, chose to be in the pool. And even though the man was predetermined to make the choice to be in the pool, he still, with his free will, chose to be in the pool. Where this gets sticky, though, is that we can't actually prove either way. We can't actually prove that we're predetermined, and we can't actually prove that we have free will. So then, what this must be, and I don't use this word lightly, so don't turn this podcast off as soon as I say it, but, and I'm going to qualify it as soon as I say it, so when I say it, chill, let's get through this together. What this must be then is faith. And we've talked about this before, so I'm going to redefine faith. Faith isn't a blind trust in something we needn't understand and needn't try to understand. That's not what faith is at all. That definition of faith contradicts the Bible. So maybe it's valid in other faiths, but we're not talking other faiths. This is the Christian skeptic. So faith, then, is a reasonable conclusion you can come to that doesn't have all the answers, but has enough answers to satisfy, right? So essentially, faith is we're building a basis of knowledge. We're building a basis of logic. We're building a basis of observations tangible things, not ethereal things, tangible arguments, tangible observations, tangible evidence, tangible reductions even. But there's a conclusion that must leap over some of the untangible to make. 
And so what we're going to try to do is build the largest base we can of the tangible evidence, knowledge, reasons, conclusions, and reductions to make the shortest jump possible to our conclusion. And that's ultimately what it's going to have to boil down to. We can't actually completely prove we have free will, and we can't completely disprove that we have free will either. And this is where hard determinism really actually hits its stride in an argument. You see, the argument against free will gains its strength because libertarian free will, actually the first principle of libertarian free will, is the ability to choose the opposite. So if we kind of stick to a silly example here. If you were to choose what you were going to eat for lunch, and you chose pizza, the libertarian free will, and, and also keep in mind this is different than libertarian political views, uh, people can believe in libertarian free will and be socialists or libertarians or republicans or democrats or whatever. This is philosophy, not politics. So if you're thinking politics, go find a different podcast. But where the libertarian free will believer uh, gets their first principle is it's the first principle of the alternative. And what that basically says is, yes, you chose pizza, but you very well could have chosen Chinese food instead. And while that makes sense from an argumentative point, I have no proof that you could have chosen Chinese food instead of pizza. And you may say, well, the next day I'll choose Chinese food, but I can still argue, and this is again where predeterminism gets its strength in its first principle, is outside factors influence that. So you choose to eat pizza for lunch, and I say, yes, of course you chose to eat pizza for lunch. You were predetermined since the Big Bang Theory by differential equations, and we can have a logical stream of why you chose to eat pizza for lunch today, and you can say, ha, I will prove to you this is wrong, and I will choose to eat Chinese food today. And I say, you've proven nothing, because I was predetermined to bring this argument to you. And my predetermination to bring this argument to you predetermined that you would choose the opposite tomorrow. And upon hearing this argument, it predetermined you would choose back again, or even choose a third option. And you've bested my Spaniard, so clearly you must have studied, and in studying you learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far away from yourself as possible, which means I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. I hope you got the reference, because I promise to always and forever quote that movie. Greatest movie of all time. Anyway, I digress. And so there is no proof that we have free will, but there's no proof we don't have free will. And that's something very important. While we have mathematical philosophies and reductionisms that tell us it's very well possible we don't have free will, we have nothing that says for certain that we don't have free will. Free will doesn't fit into our math equations. This is true. And even our math equations that account for random variables, which is a huge part of differential equations. So even if you try to present the argument that, well, free will is random, okay, well, that actually factors into differential equations. Again, another really strong argument for predeterminism. So what am I saying then? Am I saying, well, we can't prove it, so uh, just go ahead and believe it. No, 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 no. I think we can find evidence and we can find logic and reasoning that says free will actually probably does exist and we probably do have it. And the first argument that's easily ripped to shreds about this is the argument of morality, right? <laughs> this is... This is the classic one where you go through a year or two of apologetics training and someone brings you this argument of, well, everything's predetermined. And you're like, ha, 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 I've been through uh, you know, a year of online apologetics training. I got the perfect argument to tear your argument apart, not realizing that your argument itself is a fallacy. But let's talk about it anyway, because it's out there. The argument from morality to say, well, predeterminism can't be true. Because if I go around saying everything's predetermined, then I can commit murder and say, well, I was predetermined to commit that murder. 
so I shouldn't be tried for it. And morality crumbles and society falls apart and it's chaos and anarchy and <laughs> Okay, well, chill out. Actually, let's think of the fallacy that you just made. Because you see, you're not actually fully thinking out predeterminism. Because predeterminism, again, going back to differential equations, going back to reductionists, what we have predetermined for us now is a culture and society that acts on a reward versus punishment system. So, in other words, you're not making choices. The biological indicators within you that say, keep this creature alive, which we all have. We all have fight or flight instincts, right? We all have um, this sense within us that says, preserve life, protect. Half of that is where we probably get our anxieties from as a species. And I, I'm not even going to touch the year 2020 and all that everything that caused, right? But we've programmed ourselves or Perhaps I should say the predeterministic causes that be have programmed humans to live in a society that is reward versus punishment based. So in other words, society is now programmed. Morality is, is actually extremely relevant in a predetermined uh, philosophy, in a hardcore deterministic philosophy, because morality then are the inputs Morality, then, are the governing equations that drive our predeterminism, that make us all cogs in the machine, as it were. And it is in our absolute best interest that we remain moral creatures. And frankly, you don't have a choice in the matter anyway. You're going to choose morality because it's predetermined that you choose morality in a hardcore predeterministic philosophy. So it's a noble argument. I appreciate anyone that makes it, but it does have a fallacy. And unfortunately, we have to stop right there because we are so out of time for this episode. So I'm going to leave you with an Empire Strikes Back category level of cliffhanger up until the next episode. But let's continue the conversation. Feel free to reach out. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. <laughs>